And welcome to a very special episode of the History of the Atlantic World. Uh, my name is Jesse Wiest. Thank you for joining us. And I really do mean us for this bonus episode. Uh, I, what follows is an interview I conducted with Dr. Chris Ferguson, uh, a PhD in psychology who uh, is a professor at Stetson University. He is the author of a few books. Uh, one of them is Moral Combat, uh, which is uh, why his take on why the uh, war on violent video games is wrong. Another is uh, a fiction novel uh, set in Renaissance Florence uh, called Suicide Kings. But the reason I'm talking to Dr. Ferguson is he just finished up a new book that was recently published uh, called how Madness Shaped History. And let me tell you, it is delightful. Um, if you're looking for a good book to read, especially in these crazy coronavirus times, if you're if you're uh, listening to this in, uh, in April of 2020, uh, you might need something to do. Uh, how Madness Shaped History is a really, really great book. I just want to say that. Uh, now, I enjoyed doing this interview a lot. I've got a few more lined up over the next few months. Um, I'm going to release them as bonus episodes. If you guys uh, enjoy them enough, um, I might eventually collect them into a separate kind of spinoff show. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, uh, the next episode of the main show, Conquest of the Americas Part 4, is uh, I'm recording that today as well. So you might uh, actually uh, be able to listen to that that episode by at the exact same time that you find this episode, or if not, uh, then a few hours later. Um, anyway, uh, one other thing, if you happen to enjoy interviews uh, like uh, like this, um, I'd like to introduce you to a great show put out with uh, Big Heads Media, uh, who uh, we are a partner with. It's called Her American Story. Um, Her American Story is a great show, um, uh, basically where... Uh, first and second generation American women just get to tell their story. Um, it's a lot of fun. Here's a, here's a quick promo uh, for that show. Do you love a good story? Her American Story is a podcast for anyone who loves a good story. First and second generation American women share their American experience. Sharing our stories helps us to relate to one another, build understanding, as well as provide representation for those that need it most. I grew up in a smaller American town and lacked representation in my community and simply in media at that time. I created something I wanted to hear. I hope this podcast reaches those that need it most, as well as serves as a collection of simply interesting stories. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. 
everyone has the story. Share yours with me. Email me at heramericanstory at gmail.com. Uh, here with you today. Um, uh, it's really, uh, I'm, I'm really great to, uh, glad to talk to you. Um, I loved your book, How Man Has Shaped History. I literally could not put it down. Um, and I like super glued the cover. That's, that's why. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a very, the, the title draws, draws you. Um, but I have to say, I, I think you're a really uh, humorous writer for someone writing about nonfiction. I, I would like to pay you that compliment before you, we start talking, I guess. Um, cool. I, I, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a, uh, plenty of history books that, that don't give you that feeling of wanting to keep going and going and going. Um, I, I can tell you that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I just start with a simple question, I guess. Why don't you tell uh, everybody listening what the book is about? Sure. Yeah. So that's a great question. So yeah, it's, it's pretty much what it says on the box. Essentially, it's not a big mystery. Yeah. So uh, yes, how mad has shaped history. So I, I really was kind of uh, curious. So well, what basically happened is you know I've read a few of these books like uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, and uh, what's the other one by Ian Morris there? Like how why the West rules and this kind of stuff. So oh, yeah, there are yeah. books that I've read out there that make the argument. I think do a really good job of making the argument that uh, history to a large degree is shaped by things like geography, you know, so the luck of where you happen to live, you know, plays a role. And so the argument is, yeah. of course, Europeans had access to horses and people in Central and South America didn't. And that, so that's kind of like one factor that plays a role in why European nations sort of rose to this massive prominence um, during the Enlightenment period and like the Aztecs or the you know Incas didn't, uh, even right. though they have very sophisticated societies uh, that they had developed. And I think that's a persuasive argument, but I kind of felt like that left out this sort of element that like sometimes individuals really do matter, you know, that there are these like crisis points, you know, that societies can hit when they need to kind of like make decisions fast and what can happen is they can either get someone who's got kind of a level head and that can result in one path it might not always be the right path but uh, you know oftentimes it is or they can have someone who really has some psychological issues and they can kind of roll the dice if you will uh, on that and sometimes you can get someone who's kind of brilliant you know who may have psychological issues but still is is like the right person at the moment more often you get disaster <laughs> on the other right. hand so it was interesting to look at different periods in history and look at certain particular individuals who occupied unique spaces in history and what they did with those spaces. And, uh, you know, and there are exceptions, uh, you know, we you know, uh, can think of a few, but for the most part, they sort of ended up being a sort of fulcrum for a decline, whether quickly or slowly for the society uh, that they were, you know, making decisions for. So really the book was kind of focused on this, is these kind of like lurid, you know, interesting stories about, you know, mad women and mad men and how they ended up, in most cases, doing some damage to the societies that they were leading. Oh, yeah. And um, I, you know, there, you, I, I have to say, there's a, you talk about a lot of different examples and some of them, uh, I, I have to say, I'm a huge fan of history and, but, uh, uh, you know, obviously history is everything that ever happened all over the place. So uh, there's always so many things to learn. And, and some of the stories in there are just uh, 
were kind of eye-opening, especially for me, and that the ancient history stuff is not something that I'm particularly well-versed in. And uh, I, 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 I can't remember the name of the war. Was it the Peloponnesian, the Peloponnesian War? I guess that the, oh, yeah. or, or the, the the Greek that was I, that was that was great. But um, uh, <laughs> before we go into into any further, um, I I am in, interested, and I think some of the listeners might be interested too, about someone who is a uh, a psychologist, a professor of psychology, and then writes a history book. How did that? Uh, what made you decide to write the book? I guess or. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. How did that come about? That's a great question. So, I mean, I think part of it is I'm already, you know, I'm a forensic psychologist, actually. So I'm already kind of, you know, part of my interest in psychology was already being kind of drawn to the dark side. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and of course, uh, you know, among the sort of historical figures in the book, there are a certain number of serial killers and mass murderers who make appearances here and there um, in the in the book. Some of them are politicians. Some of them are just not, uh, you right. know, so interesting group of people as uh, as well uh, so i was already kind of used to writing about sort of like darkness as well and, and i got kind of curious again so sort of like looking back of not just people yeah i sort of used to write a lot like ted bundy and and uh jeffrey dahmer and figures like that kind of like serial killers and you know people in recent you know history that people are aware yeah. of. and of course hitler and stalin and all, all that kind of people are but i want to kind of look back and look at like you know like look at the Roman Empire and like what did people like Caligula and Elagabalus and like that do to the Roman Empire, you know, and what you know what different track might it have taken if it had gotten someone, you know, a bit more stable, if you will, you know, during some of the you know periods it had to face. You know, so I was kind of looking at like what are the sort of similarities of different individuals, you know, throughout history. And of course it's always kind of tricky to sort of like diagnose people who lived like 2000 years ago and that kind of stuff. And you know, right, yeah. careful point in the book, uh, but it's still kind of fascinating to look at, like, are there like certain common threads that run through some of these individuals? Are there some differences that run through some of these individuals and what can we take from history to learn about like today and how we make decisions today and in the political issues we're having today and the psychological issues we're having today. And how can we try to not repeat you know, some of the mistakes of the past, if you will? Well, absolutely. That's that's a that's a really good point. And and I I want to get into one thing you, you specifically talk about in the book, um, a, a, a especially um, since we're going to talk about uh, uh, what to look out for. Uh, I think the chief thing you want to look out for is you talk about your your Hitlers and your Stalins and your Maos, and and they seem to have something that you. Uh, you and, and uh, I'd say researchers call the dark triad of of personality disorders. And so I guess if we're going to really look out for anything, uh, <laughs> we should probably look out for the dark triad. And, and what is the dark triad? I know you, you get into this into the book, but briefly, yeah. uh, just so uh, uh, what is that? Yeah, so there's been a lot of psychological research on this concept of the dark triad, which has got a great name, by the way. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really neat. Yeah, it's a very interesting sounding concept. Yeah, it's kind of like excellent name that the like the general public can grab onto. That's how you become like a famous psychologist. But this is that's not my idea. Actually, other right. people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I I knew that wasn't. And I, I I remember as soon as I said that, I was like, no, I believe I remember reading. He made it clear that that was somebody yeah. else's name. But um, well, anyhow, sorry. So it's really three personality characteristics that none of them are good, but you sort of like combine them together. You know, well, I mean, two of them are definitely not good. One might not be terrible, but you combine the three together, 
and you really end up with a lot of problems. And the one is antisocial personality disorder, which is your standard psychopath or sociopath. It's really not much distinction in those terms, you know, but basically someone who lacks empathy and takes advantage of others and, and uh, doesn't feel guilty for the things that they do that is wrong. Um, and you combine that. So the fun thing about antisocial people, by the way, is they're actually people kind of like hear the term and they assume that antisocial means that they don't like people. Like yes. like, that's not true at all. I mean, people who are like have antisocial personality sort of tend to be very outgoing. In fact, uh, it's just that their social connections are used to manipulate and take advantage of others. Uh, then the, the second you have is narcissistic personality disorder, which probably most people can get a sense of what it is from, from the name, but it's a sense that you're better than most other people, that you have unique talents that other people don't have, that you should be given more rights than other people should enjoy. So basically sort of putting yourself as being more important than other people and thinking of yourself as being better um, than other people. And the third is something called uh, Machiavellianism, which, of course, is named after the Italian philosopher of Stetslack. And the idea, that's the least bad of the three. I mean, again, a sort of moderate dose of Machiavellianism isn't necessarily terrible, but it's basically a kind of like cynical, strategic, political approach uh, to things like calculating how to make decisions so they maximize your benefit and maybe not necessarily the benefit of other people. So it doesn't really the full blood harshness of antisocial, but there still is that kind of like means or the ends, you know, justify the means, you know, kind of mentality that it's not really concerned with ethics or morality. It's really about strategy. You're trying to get to a particular strategic goal and pragmatically what things you need to get to that goal without worrying about the ethics or morality of the things that you're doing. So if you can put the three together and you have someone who doesn't have a conscience, essentially, who thinks they're better than everybody else, and is willing to strategically try to get to their goals without worrying about morality or ethics, you can end up with a pretty dangerous combination of individuals. Now, there probably are plenty of people out there that are like that, like, you know, in certain careers like business, law, you know, politics that aren't necessarily disasters, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. now that, you know, that we've had, you know, particular issues with, you know, at least seem to fit, you know, that particular diagnosis. Or that partic- it's not really a diagnosis, but that particular kind of cluster of personality features. You can see hints of narcissism, antisocialness, and that strategic, you know, ruthlessness uh, in combination. And it seems to what both makes them very successful. Um, and it sometimes leads to their disasters, you know. As, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it, it, it's... It, uh, it, it, yeah, that's an interesting cause. It's not necessarily terrible. I mean, I have some friends who are ruthlessly beat me at, at board games and video games and stuff. And they've clearly got some of these traits when we're playing, I feel like, but they're, they're not out to harm anybody. But on the other hand, maybe they shouldn't be in, in charge of, of the world. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, um, and, and you talk about an awful lot of people, uh, in the book. Um, and I, you're welcome to, to talk about whoever you want. Um, one of the, the, the two figures in particular, though, that you mention have a lot um, have a have a big role in some of the episodes for for, for my show, the uh, yeah. the conquest of the Americas, and I haven't really talked about him a whole lot. And um, but uh, I have mentioned this the Spanish Habsburg dynasty a little bit. But um, would you tell us? 
Who is the person in history known as Joanna the Mad? And why is she important to history? So she is probably the most consequential queen that you've never heard of, essentially, in a way, in that she is the daughter of Isabella of Castile and uh, Ferdinand of Aragon. Uh, So she um, basically is the first woman who unites the, um, the houses of Castile and Aragon into what becomes properly a united Spain. Now, of course, Isabella and Ferdinand get most of the credit, um, but their union came through their marriage, you know, so each of them still remain technically the monarch of either Castile or Aragon. With their daughter, uh, Joanna, uh, both houses meet in one individual. So she becomes sort of like the first proper, if you will, queen of a technically united Spanish empire. Uh, She also has uh, the... Uh, fortune of marrying a fellow named uh, Philip the Handsome, uh, which sort of describes his most prominent feature, apparently. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) A prince of the um, Austrian uh, house of Habsburg. Uh, So she also basically I'm saying she as if she had initiative in doing all this. She didn't actually hear of her, but she basically ends up uniting Spain and Austria, and you end up with this massive like Habsburg empire uh, that spans, you know, Spain, Austria, the Netherlands, parts of Italy. This, you know, it was like a superpower um, in its day. Um, unfortunately, she also was severely mentally ill, uh, and in her late teens and early twenties. She began to experience, according to the historical record at least, a, a lot of symptoms that look like some kind of psychosis. Now, whether she has schizoaffective disorder or bipolar, you know, it's, it's hard to narrow it down to specifically what she seems to have been experiencing. But it looks like in her late teens or early 20s, about the time she married Philip, uh, she uh, develops this uh, psychosis, uh, which led to her having lots of issues with obsessiveness, paranoia, anxiety, depression. She really was just a mess, essentially. Yeah. She was highly devoted to her husband, loved him, like literally to death in the sense that like once he, he died pretty young, he died fairly soon after the marriage, she would not let him be buried, <laughs> you know, so she would go to the tomb. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, yeah, so just like, you know, some uh, unusual, uh, you know, behavior. So what ends up happening is while Isabella is alive, her mother, Isabella tries to take care of her. Isabella kind of comes through history as a very sort of a difficult woman, uh, but uh, it does look like she tried her best to take care of Joanna while Isabella was still alive. But once Isabella dies, Joanna's kind of, you know, doesn't really have a protector any longer. And as a consequence, first her father, Ferdinand, and then her son, um, Carlos, basically sort of move her aside and place her in an asylum. Uh, and so she is entirely cut off of power, and first her father and then her son end up ruling in her place either as regent or, in the case of her son, eventually as co-monarch, or eventually he becomes a Holy Roman Empire, em- Emperor. So, uh, you know, so... There, there's some kind of like conspiracy theories around her that sometimes suggest maybe she wasn't really that mentally ill, and maybe Ferdinand and uh, Carlos just kind of shoved her aside, uh, but the uh, or Charles just kind of shoved her aside. But the reality seems to be that probably uh, she had a significant mental illness, and uh, you know, it's yeah. possible that her father and sons in various ways took advantage of that. Um, but the likelihood is that she really did have uh, some pretty severe issues uh, that she was experiencing. Right, yeah. Um, and well, 
Uh, and the Habsburg uh, dynasty stays in power for Spain for, for so long. And you, and you talk a little bit about, uh, and this is a great example about it, about how, uh, you know, madness and genetics kind of intertwine. And um, and at the other end of the, uh, of the of the of the Habsburg dynasty, we have somebody named Charles II. And uh, I, I, you know, and he's a, a descendant, I guess, of Joanna. But what, what who is he and what happens when? When when Charles here gets in charge, I guess in in the sixteen fifty five is what I have. Yeah, yeah. So she, yeah, she is a. I'm trying to think what level of great grandson, but basically she is a. Or he is a, a descendant of Joanna. So the 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 funny thing is that the Habsburgs in Austria had some probably some genetic issues, in that once they're married into the Spanish house, uh, then the Spanish. Uh, um, Habsburgs also acquire some of those genetic limitations. So what happens is back then is people kind of evolved this idea of like royal blood as being pure. And the unfortunate part of that aspect is that then begins to break down some barriers to incest. Uh, if you believe that royal blood is pure, then you shouldn't mix it with non-royal blood, right? But that means that the gene pool of people you can, you know, marry and produce kids with becomes very limited. So it became very customary for people to marry their first cousins uh, during that time period, uh, which you can get away with to a limited extent. Um, but if you do it generation after generation, and there's a genetic mutation in there, then that increases the frequency of those genetic mutations and makes them worse. So the, the most prominent example is sometimes called the Habsburg jaw. So you sometimes yeah. hear about the very protruding lower jaw that both the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs even uh, had. Uh, even Mar uh, Marie Antoinette, who is a Habsburg, you know, was su supposed to have had some minor variant of the Habsburg uh, jaw that gave her kind of a pouting lip uh, and such. But it was usually worse in the males um, than in the females. Um, and because of that inbreeding that continued over generations, it ends up getting progressively worse. That The Spanish Habsburgs always had the jaw, and they always tended to be prone to melancholy. There weren't really any happy Spanish Habsburgs that I could recall um, through uh, through history. All of the like very powerful kings that you read about, you know, Charles and the Phillips, the various Phillips, all were not happy campers. Uh, and it ends basically with Charles II, um, who is born with significant physical and cognitive, um, you know, disabilities, essentially. He, you know, uh, doesn't talk until the age of four. Uh, he never showed, you know, sort of proper cognitive development. There are some debates about the degree of his cognitive um, impairment, but it seems pretty clear he had at least some degree of cognitive of impairment. Uh, he also has severe physical limitations. He wasn't expected to live through childhood. Uh, he had issues with his digestive tract. He was thought to have been impotent. Uh, um, and uh, just a whole host of medical and psychological issues. He doesn't seem to have been a bad guy. You know, so, you know, he right. seems fairly simple. Just kind of wanted to do his own thing, play with his toys, go play in the garden. He loved his wife, his first wife in particular, dearly. Um, but he just wasn't suited to be a king, you know, um, yeah. and, and he had the problem with the jaw. It was so bad for him. He had difficulty talking and swallowing because the jaw was so badly malformed. Um, and, uh, unfortunately for Spain, he ended up ruling at a period where Spain was under a lot of strain. Uh, so their empire was beginning to contract, not geographically yet so much, but economically it was starting to struggle and they were always at war with, with particularly France, but also the Netherlands and England, 
And so they were in a bad military position. They were in a bad financial position. They really needed to update their military traditions and stuff. They needed a strong ruler, and they ended up with Charles II, uh, who is not a bad guy, uh, but just, you know, was not yeah. the person they needed uh, for that time period. And also because of his difficulty with his sexual functioning, he doesn't have any air. Um, so when he dies, and I forget his age exactly, he died in you know early to mid-adulthood, um, it ends up causing a crisis in European politics because he ends up naming, um, I think it was a nephew of uh, Louis XIV, a French Bourbon uh, king, as his successor, uh, which totally upsets the balance of power in uh, in Europe and leads to the War of the Spanish Succession, which is the end of Spain as a leading power um, in Europe and the rise of England um, as a leading power uh, in yeah. Europe. So pretty much ends the Spanish Empire as a thing that people care about for the most part, <laughs> other than piracy. <laughs> so right. the love it to grab gold from them, but other than that, as a really influential power, Spain is clearly on the decline from that point on. You know, they putter on for a couple more centuries until the U.S. puts them out of their misery with the Spanish-American War in the late 1800s. Um, oh, yeah, no, that's that's thank you for getting into that. Thank you. That's great. Uh, now, um, one other thing you get into the book, uh, you have a chat, you have, uh, you know, uh, different chapters on different uh, different types of madness or, or how a madness can enter uh, or different chapters. I don't let me don't let me talk. Um, but one is about madness and religion. And yeah. uh, I thought that one was interesting because you talked a little bit about a concept called uh, about how uh, probably different kinds of madness, but religious madness is one of these that how, you know, we're I guess we're really worried that Hitler or Stalin or, 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 or Mao is, is, is going to crawl out of the woodwork. But I guess the reality is a lot of times you're, the madness is really just personally destructive. And mm-hmm. and I thought that, you know, in particular, one example I could think of that I just got into was how uh, – at a time when Christopher Columbus uh, needed to show uh, the same kind of leadership, I guess, that Charles II wasn't able to, to, if he wanted to get his goal of controlling as much of the new world as possible, he sent a letter back to, to Ferdinand and Isabella saying that he had discovered the the uh, the the Garden of Eden. And I, I mean, even in the about 1492, I can't imagine that he, he really – <laughs> if he had sat down and thought that through, that uh, with, with a clear mind, that that would have been a good thing to write back. Uh, but anyway, um, could you just, I guess, get into that idea about, I guess, personally destructive madness or religious madness or, or a, a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, so first off, it's important to point out that religion can be a very positive part of people's lives. So it's not yeah. you know, trying to disparage all religion or organized religion or, or, or whatever else. It's like everything else, like in a certain balance, it can be positive. And if it's taken to an extreme, it can, it can either be uh, you know, personally destructive uh, or can be destructive you know, to other individuals. Of course, if we're sticking with the, the Spanish example, you know, Isabella in particular and Ferdinand to a lesser extent, were very pious individuals, but in a very very rigid and destructive way, you know, as I hear a lot about like, the treatment of the Jews and the Moors or the right. you know, Muslims in Spain, which is incredibly ruthless, you know, but, um, you know, to 
particularly to Isabella, that was part of her, you know, religious agenda was to Christianize the entirety of Spain. So Columbus probably was playing, not successfully, but probably playing to some of that a little bit. And his, yeah, uh, his yeah, Isabella, you know, uh, it wasn't successful. They eventually figured out he was kind of a nutter. But, um, but uh, yeah, so you can see that kind of destructiveness to others. You know, and sometimes this uses as an excuse. You know, so we have to be a little bit cautious with that. So sometimes, like conflicts over resources maybe guised under well we're doing it for religious purposes when it's really something what's that machiavellianism again right you know so yeah yeah uh, something other than religion but religion is used as a cover so we have to sometimes be wary of always blaming religion for every conflict that has a religious overtone um but you can get into this sort of sense of like religion sometimes being a personally destructive thing if taken too far you know so there's this idea that you know people will engage indulge or engage in activities that are rewarding for one reason or another but we always need to maintain a balance uh, with those activities and religion is just like any other that it can be a rewarding thing it can be very social it can make us feel better about ourselves it can help us during stressful times but if we indulge in it too much it can begin to interfere with our social relationships it can interfere with our health or our finances um and such and so are there are these you know excellent examples of various martyrs you know or saints throughout history that engaged in you know asceticism where basically is the sort of mortification of the flesh where they're literally in some cases starving themselves to death or in other ways engaging in unhygienic practices uh because they believe it's going to bring them closer to you know to god i think it was saint mark for instance, who never washed her hair purposely to get lice in order to like, you know, uh, it was for most of us. It's like, yeah, just, just, just to suffer. <laughs> get where you're going with it. But, uh, you know, uh, so there are, you know, are issues like that. And of course, you know, St. Catherine, who start basically starved herself to death as a, you know, as a, uh, I, you know, that was what she believed she had to do in order to, you know, be uh, fully in touch with God um, and such, um, you know. But it doesn't have to be something quite as extreme like that, you know. Essentially, we see this, and again, you, on the other hand, you do see these like dark triad people take advantage of it. That people will sometimes, on a much smaller level, donate money they don't have, you know, to mm-hmm. religious faiths. You now, that's where again, sometimes you have choicers who are taking uh, advantage of that, you know. So, like everything else, you know, religion has to maintain, be maintain a certain balance, and we're making sure that we're not, you know despite what some of the, you know, language might be, that we're not totally sacrificing our lives in this world. I don't think we need to do that. I don't think most most faiths say that we need to do that. There may be a few very ascetic faiths that say we do, but most faiths I don't think say we have to, like, kill ourselves in this life to, you know, be successful in the next, whatever that may mean. But rather we need to find a certain amount of balance between, you know, finding ways to spiritually grow without necessarily having that impact negatively on our health, on our mental health, on our financial situation, uh, or in the way that we treat other people, you know, so that um, if you look at the way like, you know, Christianity, particularly in the New Testament, I'm not a Bible scholar, so I'm not going to, I could not, I'll just make up verses essentially. God wants us to eat more chocolate. Uh, so, um, but, uh, you know, at least my, you know, certainly non-expert reading in the New Testament, it's a very loving text for the most part. It really is about right. to understand others and and uh, not judging and, you know, and, uh, but you can see where it's, people will sometimes distort religious messages in order to hate others, you know, to, 
um, be negative towards others. And in that sense, you're probably adding more negativity into the world. And uh, I think there's some value in stopping and considering, you know, am I really adhering to the messages of my faith if I'm making other people miserable? And is that really what Christ wants me to do? Or is it really what Muhammad wants me to do, or Buddha, or, or whoever, you know, the spiritual leader of the faith is. And I think in most cases we would find, you know, and, and, and all faiths are guilty of this, you know, you can find. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. Militants, you, know, you, you know, which is weird in a way when you think of our, even our stereotypes of Buddhism as being very peaceful. Uh, but, uh, you know, Buddha didn't say to go out and kill non-Buddhists, you know, and, uh, and Christ didn't go out, you know, say go out and kill, you know, non-Christians and stuff. And so sometimes we can get wound up in our religious beliefs. We can distort what those religious beliefs actually are. And then we can also become very ideological. So our, our religious beliefs can cut us off from other sources of information. That's not unique to religion. You can see this sometimes with certain you know, social ideologies as well. I mean, both you know, far-right conservatism and far-left conservatism. But you hear at least you know, occasionally the anecdotes of parents who don't bring their sick children into the doctor because their faith says they should pray, you know, and then the child dies, you know, and so, you know, my argument there would be, you know, I certainly don't mean any disrespect uh, to people that follow different faiths, but, you know, you just want to be kind of, kind of open to other sources of information from science right. or things like that. If you're completely closed off to that, we can see examples like this where individuals themselves don't seek medical care they should get or they don't seek it for their children. And clearly that is causing destructiveness to themselves or to their families. And, uh, and that's where we may want to think. It's like, how can we balance this? Maybe a little bit better. OK. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Um, now, you've got a, a couple more chapters uh, I want to talk about. And um, one, one madness on the commune and another madness of the one percent, uh, which seem to me like they both almost you kind of hint that there's almost a, a relationship there. And I want to say, I, I kind of, I personally uh, agreed with a lot of what you wrote and uh, real briefly, I, I'm a very, very, very left leaning, I guess myself. And I, and I remember in, in college for whatever class I whatever history class it was, uh, I had to read the communist manifesto. And I realized uh, kind of you get into this. There was no I, I was kind of expecting like almost like a constitution or something. You know, this is how we'll run the dictatorship. And I, it, it's not what it was. And yeah. but it, it, it seems to me, well, I guess what you're getting at is that the kind of situation where people would be so angry that they're wanting to overthrow the status quo, like a real revolution, isn't necessarily going to end up in someone, say, like Bernie Sanders being in charge. That would maybe just be a great way for someone with those dark triad yeah. uh, tendencies maybe to slide in. And um, I, 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 you talk about whatever you want with this, but does this, I guess, uh, does this... It, it, does this leave us kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place? Are we are we destined to be ruled by madness? I guess no matter. What. Is there a way out of this or whatever? Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, well first off, it's, it's funny because you know, I, I even right now with the election coming up, I see these like various memes on Facebook and Twitter, and that, you know, we, you know, we're ready for a revolution. So I was like, okay, so first off, most revolutions fail. Is you know, right. so you understand like the odds of getting what you so either most revolutions fail. 
or they end up in something worse than the thing you started with, you know? So the American revolution was weird and that it actually kind of succeeded and kind of got what the people, you know, at least the people that sort of initiated it wanted, you know, right. strange. that is an outlier revolution. Most revolutions are either crushed uh, or if they do succeed, they end up with something totally different than what most of their supporters imagine. You can look at like the French revolution of uh, 1789. And of course the Russian revolution, various Russian revolutions right around the Bolsheviks uh, taking power. Um, neither of these resulted in any Anything better than what they, you know, what they uh, yeah. starting off with, you know, and uh, you know, even the, you know, like the, was it the, the, um, I forget the exact word for it, but the, the Arab Spring of just about, about ten years ago, for instance, most of those revolutions were crushed. I right. think Tunisia looks better than it did beforehand, but most of the other countries either ended up with a different authoritarian regime or just didn't change. You know, basically the revolution was smashed before it got anywhere. So, yeah, you have to be a little bit cautious saying like, you know, so, so. I mean, like in the United States, we may disagree with a lot of things that are happening, you know, and, you know, I don't necessarily like our current government myself, um, but you have to kind of take some stock of what you have, that we have the freedom to criticize our government, you know, we have, most of us have a television and a DVD player, and, you know, uh, <laughs> most of us can get access to healthcare, some can't, and I understand that, and we, that is something that would be great if we could fix um, but uh, things aren't that bad. They could be better, but they're not super, super bad. Um, and if you create a revolution, there's a small chance you might get something better. There's a much bigger chance worse uh, than where you started from. And that's always the case with revolutions. You have to kind of say, you're like, okay, granted, if you're in like Russia in like 1917, it might be worth it. You know, uh, if you're in the U.S. in 2020, eh, I don't know if a revolution is what we want. We want change maybe, but working within the system is probably going to be more productive than changing it entirely. Um, I mean, the thing with commun communism is funny, right? Because even today, like People's Republic of China, there are people that love the PRC, like in the West, you know, mm. will make apologies for Mao and, uh, you know, still think like with, you know, COVID-19, the PRC is doing great, <laughs> you know. So you get these kind of like weird apologies about communism in China. It was, an, it was and remains an incredibly repressive and authoritarian regime, you know. Yeah, yeah. Communism sucks, you know. It's just like. Other than, like, Nazism, it's hard to think. I mean, I would take an absolute monarchy over... Right. Yay. <laughs> Monarchs. But there's some that are not bad. Yeah. There's no good... I can't think of an actual communist government that wasn't horrible. They're, they're, like, uniformly terrible. It's difficult to find, you know... I mean, probably, you know, maybe, like, modern Vietnam might be as close as you can kind of get. But... Um, you know, but yeah, communism is is has got a terrible, terrible track record. So it's kind of funny when you see people that are you know uh, tempted to try it. Right, <laughs> right. Like, you know, I mean, socialism is weird. Right? Socialism is so ill-defined that it means different things. You know, to, to yeah, yeah, Mark, right? You know. The Denmarkian system is not socialism the way that like Marx and Engels thought of socialism. It's really kind of like a you know take a bunch of money and, and toss it around you know to everybody so kind of like levels of playing field. It's, it's capitalism with a 
a softer edge, if you will. So not anything like what uh, socialism was envisioned by Marx or en Engels. Yeah, but you know, other regimes like Venezuela are also socialism that's probably closer to the Marx Engelism Engels sort of approach to it. We don't want that. And, that, and again, that sort of system really doesn't work very well. So people when they call for socialism should be very specific. We want Denmark, you know, is what we want. And we can still debate whether it or off with a Denmarkian system or not, but uh, you know we want Denmarkian socialism, not Venezuelan socialism. You know, and those are very different you know uh, systems. But, but it is kind of funny, like you know, so yeah, so with communism, people kind of think that there's this like everybody's holding hands in a circle, singing songs and sharing. You know, it's like like the John Lennon song "Imagine" is like you yeah. know. <laughs> Song, and I don't think anybody wants to live in the world of John Lennon's Imagine if they really thought about it. But, but there, there has never been a variant of communism that has worked out where everybody is equal. Um, and you know, once Leninism crept in, so there was always a sense of communism was going to be violent, right? So even the Communist Manifesto has this like aggressive edge to it. You know, it's not like a peaceful freedom. Yeah. You know, it's not very long. It's very easy to read. So people right. Don't um, but it's, it's an aggressive book, you know, so it starts off with this sort of sense of aggression. You know, it definitely is us versus them, you know, uh, it's really the foundation of the whole idea. Um, but there is this sense of like, um, particularly when it starts into Leninism, once Lenin gets control of it, there's a sense of like people are idiots, right? Which is probably right. And I include myself in among the idiots, by the way. So oh, yeah. Lenin kind of, people are basically stupid. You know, the masses are idiots, you know, um, and you need the right, sort of guide everything. And this is where we start really starting to probably come off more as an oligarchy, you know. Uh, so once we get and the idea that a certain group of elite have to lead the masses and that only this group of very ideological elites, you know, they have to pass certain like uh, litmus tests to be considered, you know, and even once you're in the party, they get paranoid about each other and you end up with the Leninists and the Trotskyists and the Stalinists and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but it is a sort of like leadership by authoritarian regime, uh, which is an invitation to corruption and to brutality, uh, which is why I think we've seen such a terrible track record of, uh, you know, negative outcomes for communist, you know, regimes. I mean, you know, to to their credit, the PRC you know, are in a much better economic place than China was in under Mao's, um, you know, regime. But even today, people are like, why can't we do with COVID nineteen with the PRC are done in like Wuhan? And uh, have you seen the videos of what happens to the people? They like, ask kicking and you know. <laughs> Yeah, it works, you know, but uh, but it's still not how I think most of us would want to live, you know. Right. We really gave it some thought. So yeah, I mean, I, and I kind of made this point in the book that we had to get communism is terrible, you know, like yeah. the other system and give that a shot first. Maybe other than Nazi Germany, but other than that, you know, try an absolute monarchy. You might have a terrible outcome, but you might not have a bad outcome. You will always have a bad outcome in communism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I I agree with you. It it, uh, it it seems like the the 
the Communist Manifesto is very angry and, and it just, it's not like a plan, really. It's, it's it's more like a this is why we're being communists, not this is how this is going to work good. It's right. more like a and then you just end up with, yeah, well, now we're instead of whoever the old dictator was or there's a new dictator. And uh, anyway, yeah. Um, OK, uh, well, anyway, uh Speaking of, of, of modern politics, one thing, uh, you kind of put me at ease a little bit with, with uh, a chapter I, I think you have or, or a topic you have on dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I, I, well, I, I, it, it, it's, to me, it's, I'm not an expert at all, but um, I, I would have told you that there's Trump off on television or something 10 years ago and then today like that there's nobody with more dementia than him except for Joe Biden um, and that's not something that makes you feel good but yeah. you make an argument that dementia is not something that we should be frightened about like maybe some other madnesses or uh, Put us at ease. Uh, tell us that this election isn't going to be the last election of the that we're just all going to uh, drift away into 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 incoherence. Not, I guess it's not going to be the end of the United States. I, I can yes. I can make that pretty, We will have another election in 2024. <laughs> uh, uh, who knows who will be? I, I I won't try to predict the election this cycle. Who, who yeah, no, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't ask you to do that. But um, you know. My guess is as good as anybody. So, so yeah. So the good news about dementia, I mean, we do have examples of rulers in history who have had clearly had dementia. We've had presidents uh, who have, you know, we've had at least one who clearly had dementia, and we have one who people suspect had dementia. And those are uh, Woodrow Wilson, who had a stroke in office, um, and whose wife and uh, physician and chief of staff largely ran the country in his place in the last uh, year or so of his presidency. Wow, yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who many people suspect had early Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed once he left office, a few years after he left office, but uh, a lot of people suspect he probably had prodromal or early Alzheimer's in his last years in office. And there, are, there's, there's evidence that sort of back that up. It's not, you know, unequivocal, but um, analysis of speech, for instance, suggests his speech patterns starting to resemble people that are in the early stages of Alzheimer's and stuff in his last of office. So, so we've had the experience of, of um, at least one, maybe two presidents who have had uh, dementia. Uh, and certainly we've seen other rulers, you know, through time uh, who have had dementia. The good news about dementia is that it doesn't usually cause rulers to become like psychopaths, you know. So, uh, you know, massacres have not been created by rulers who had dementia. You know, so the idea that you know a ruler with dementia is going to like launch at the red button and launch missiles into you know Russia or something like that. No, that's probably not going to happen. You know, so it's you know, uh, what what tends to happen with rulers who have dementia is that just they just lose track of everything that's going on. So if you look at like the presidency. Um, the good news about the U.S. government, um, and again, I'm not a political scientist, so this is, but my experience with just like looking at through history, is that it tends to run pretty good. And the Roman Empire was very similar in, the, in this respect. It tends to run pretty good bureaucratically, bureaucratically, no matter who's in charge. You know, so 
you could put a raccoon in the presidency and the government would kind of hum along and we would still pay our taxes and, you know, uh, and still complain about the president, although he might look better than some of the other ones we've had, you know, I don't know. What's what people call like the, the, the deep state, you know, and it's, it's made to sound like a terrible thing, but reality kind of keeps everything humming along. Um, so, you know, the, the, really the, the idea of the presidency is to try to keep everything organized. And what, what can happen is when you have a president who doesn't set the agenda very well anymore is you can end up with allegedly at least what happened with the Reagan presidency that, you know, he started to lose. Again, if we buy the narrative that he had early Alzheimer's, um, that he began to lose a sense of what his underlings were doing. And that led to something like Iran-Contra, you know, affair. Uh, he, you know, when he testified about that, he basically said he didn't know what they were doing. And I kind of believe him, you know, uh, that's, yeah. that's entirely plausible that he did not know what they were doing or, or only had half an idea of what they were doing. And that perhaps without strong guidance, some of his um, subordinates took it upon themselves to do things that were not a great idea um, in that particular situation. So. Fortunately, with a strong bureaucracy, you can sometimes see the bureaucracy in and kind of take control. And even if mistakes are made or things look a bit chaotic, it mostly keeps things humming along. You know, so I mean, if you look at like the Roman Empire, which had a very strong bureaucracy, uh, they went through you know generations of terrible emperors and still managed to hold themselves together. You know, so for centuries of you know a pretty bad track record of emperors. Uh, they had some good ones, uh, but they had a lot of bad ones yeah. uh, to survive. Yeah, and so I think the United States has some, a lot of similarities with the Roman Empire, but that is one. Uh, and that uh, you know it's not technically an empire, of course, but even as a you know republic, it is kind of capable along matter how terrible president may be. Now, I, I don't want to like challenge the president, you know, in the sense of like proving me wrong. And so, 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 you know. I won't say it's impossible for president to completely upend, you know, uh, uh, the U.S.'s position in, in the in the world. But uh, generally speaking, you know, we've had in recent history, and people may have different opinions about which ones count, but we've had some pretty terrible presidents in, in recent history. I'm not even necessarily talking about the current incumbent, um, and we've survived it, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think that whether you like or don't like Trump or like or don't like Biden, you know, the presidency or the, the U.S. will at least survive whoever is next. Now, as to the question, are Trump or Biden uh, demented? Have, do they have dementia? I mean, obviously, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, I think most Trump, first off, they're, whichever one gets elected is going to be the oldest president uh, in U.S. history, uh, which yeah. is by, by a non-trivial amount. So that's kind of fascinating uh, to consider. And one thing is important to point out is that some degree of cognitive declines are natural. Um, so by the time that, you know, people are in their late 70s, as both uh, Trump and Biden are, um, we would expect them to have some difficulties with like memory and processing speed, uh, learning new th- tasks and stuff like that. Or, you know, on the other hand, they might, you know, accumulate wisdom, experience and patience and things like that. So there are some benefits to aging as well. I don't want to make it sound like it's all terrible. But it's funny because my mother, who's 79, keeps joking, and she has, you know, early Alzheimer's. Uh, she keeps joking that she should run for president if, if Joe Biden can, because you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when we like analyze people's speech, you know, from you know 10 years ago to today, um, it's sort of normal to see some declines in people's speech, you know, at that at that age. So we can't say that necessarily is dementia. You know, I think it's probably 
with Trump and Biden, you could show that their speeches declined. People showed it pretty clearly with George W. Bush as well. His speech declined over time. Um, but uh, so that's, well, the question becomes, is have the particular markers of Alzheimer's disease? And I'm, I'm not a linguist, um, so you know, I'm not, you know, off the top of my head, I know exactly what those markers are. But there are certain markers that linguists can look for to identify if someone has early Alzheimer's, for instance. And that would be kind of intriguing. To, and that's what was, was done with Reagan in some of his you know, speeches in the end of his presidency. You know, it would be kind of intriguing to look at these individuals and see, do they speak in a way that people who have Alzheimer's tendency? And that could be an indication of experiencing uh, some dementia. Now, with, um, in a, with, with President Trump, I mean, I think probably to the extent that he has been challenging as a president, I, th- I don't think that has to do with dementia. I think that has to do with more of his personality. I mean, I, and yeah. I think he was pretty upfront to his credit with who he was. I mean, he he gave us what was on the box. I mean, he's, he was not a surprise, you know. Uh, but he is a, you know, fragile, narcissistic bomb thrower, you know. Uh, whether you think that's a feature or a bug is, is you know, depends upon where you sit, you know, politically. You know, so you may see what you wanted in the president. So you got exactly the, the bomb thrower, destroyer of everything that you hoped for, you know, and uh, on the other hand, if that wasn't what you were looking for, um, then he may seem like the worst president, you know, ever. I mean, I think historic, you know, it's impossible to judge in the moment how history will judge any president. Um, and people have very strong emotions about a current president. Um, but, you know, historically, 20, 30, 100 years, we'll have a, you know, we'll all be dead, but, you know, somebody will have a fair sense he <laughs> fits in the ranking of, of uh, presidencies. But, uh, you know, same thing with, you know, of course, the concerns come up with Joe Biden about his, um, his cognitive abilities and whether they're in decline, uh, more so than you would expect given his age, you know, perhaps. I actually met him, he probably, yeah, I don't think he would remember, but yeah, I met him briefly about 10 years, maybe not quite 10 years ago. Um, and a meeting he held about video games and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it, they're, they're politicians. So if you're looking for a non-narcissistic politician, good luck. I mean, they're all, you know, right. they all have some degree of that dark triad. It's just a do, you know, degrees. They're all narcissists. Uh, most of them are narcissists, at the very least. Um, so, you know, I think Trump tends to come across as perhaps what we might call more, more fragile narcissist in the sense that he, you know, has difficulty with, with criticism. He always has to punch back, you know, kind of stuff. Now, some people want him to do that, you know, and some people don't. Some people think it's non-presidential. Um, but uh, Joe Biden seems to be a bit more, you know, controlled, you know, at, very, at least historically, he was a bit more controlled. Um, but, um, you know, are they experiencing cognitive declines because of their age? Almost certainly. We all are going to by the time we're in our you know, late 70s. You know, are they experiencing dementia? We really don't know. Um, and uh, there may be ways of finding out if we study that in terms of like how their speech patterns and uh, you know, we'll see how they do, you know, over the next eight to 10 years, I guess, which is too late for us to decide if we want to be president. But, uh, you know, that's kind of what happened with Reagan during the time. People didn't really think he had Alzheimer's disease. It now looks like there's at least a strong chance, not definitive, that he probably that he may have had early Alzheimer's in the last years of his presidency. So, uh, but yeah, either way, um, you know, if Trump is reelected, we'll get four more years of the same. Whether you like that or don't like that, as an individual choice, if uh, we, we end up electing Biden, we'll probably have four more years that look kind of similar to the Obama years, I guess. Um, and even if one of these individuals 
individuals or both go off to their dotage somewhere in the middle of their presidency, probably things we won't notice uh, to a large degree because their subordinates will kind of move in and control things and manage them as best they can uh, until the next election. The idea that we're going to use, uh, I forget which amendment it is in the Constitution, it's 26 or something like that, I don't remember, uh, but there's an amendment in the Constitution you know, for removing uh, a president when they're no longer capable. Nobody's ever going to use that. I, I, I would be shocked you know, that if anybody ever uses that in, in our life. Yeah. So I, I don't think even if it had to mention that you would see their own cabinet um, throw them under the bus and and uh, end their presidency using that mechanism. It would take something very very severe. Yeah. You know, yeah. Have like flu or schizophrenia or something like that for that to really kick in. Dementia probably won't do it. Right. Um, okay. Well. Um you you have one one last question I get I, or topic I want to get into is um, you have a chapter uh, madness of the masses mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that might one might be the most I think important one important thing for people to consider uh, for all sorts of reasons I mean. I mean, even just like myself, I'm completely addicted to my phone. I know it. Everyone else is. I know it can't be good for me. And someone, you know, mentioned something like if there was a drug that you ate or smoked that made you stare at your hand for five minutes every hour for 12 hours a day, we would be seriously concerned for the children. But um, but not just that, obviously, very topically, uh, um, I'll be, I guess, by uploading this tomorrow morning, but uh, uh, we're dealing with with coronavirus and um, I guess social distancing and everything and feeling a little isolated. And so I guess probably we're all feeling a little mad. And in your book, you mentioned that every uh, you have a a brief aside, I guess, about how every once in a while a crazy person wanders into your room and you have to talk to him for 10 or 15 minutes. So so talk to everybody out here where we are all the crazy people wandering in your office. Uh, Dr. Chris Ferguson, help us. How do you have any advice to help us deal with the current madness that uh, we are living through? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, so usually with those, and I think I mentioned in the book, usually with, so, you know, because we're a psychology department and we have an open campus, sometimes individuals would act as schizophrenia, will, you know, wander to campus. And they always send them to the psychology department. Uh, I don't know. I, I, of course they would, I guess. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> usually these individuals are harmless, you know, and so I usually just say, hey, look, you know, I, got, I can give you 20 minutes. You can talk about what is usually the Bible. So you can talk about the Bible if you want for 20 minutes. You know, I'll listen. And then I, I got to get back to work. So that's usually kind of right. like, so I'll do, I'll do that with like the public as well. I can hear you for 20 minutes and then I got to get back. To the it. No, I'm teasing. Yeah, so, yeah. And the, the I, 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 I want to be clear. I'm not trying to make anybody show up to your office. I apologize if that happens. <laughs> We're all on lockdown now anyway. So I, yeah, I, right. Um. Yeah, so I mean, we kind of go back to Lenin, and if you know, Lenin had lots of terrible ideas, but one thing he was right about was kind of this idea that like people are basically idiots, right? You know, and and like I said, I include myself in that, you know, and what you know that means. So taking it out of the context of communism, what that kind of means is that we mostly make decisions emotionally, you know, not intellectually. Um, Sometimes we do, but usually we make these kind of like gut decisions that are based on how we feel. And the problem is that that causes us to make a lot of bad decisions. You know, making decisions upon how you feel, you can probably relate to this relationship and that relationship wasn't going very well. And your head is telling you to get out of the relationship, but your heart says that you're in love with them and that you want to try it. And usually you go with your heart and you're wrong, right? You know what I mean? 
Oh, usually your head was telling you the actual thing that you should have been listening to. Um, so, uh, you know, so that makes it a case that we're bad at making, like, database decisions. That's kind of why, like, the original framers of the Constitution built it the way that it is. That people complain about the Electoral College and other elements of our Republican system that aren't exactly democratic. Um, and they did that for a reason, because if you try like a full-blown de- democracy, you end up with ancient Athens, which was a disaster. Um, yeah. you, know, you, know, you want some blocks between people's emotion and decision-making. Um, and that works up to an extent. You know, So if you look at like how people make decisions about something like, say, global warming. like So global warming is obviously being eclipsed at the moment by this whole COVID-19 thing, but it's probably like one of the the big issues that we're going to face over the next couple of generations, right? Um, But how people make a decision about whether they believe it's a thing or not is usually not data-based. And people pick on conservatives mostly for this, right? It's people who are sort of denying that global warming is real, it's a conspiracy or whatever. But the, the, the research suggests that liberals or democrats or progressives are just as bad actually and that they believe in global warming not because they know anything about it because it's what democrats do you know and republicans don't believe in global warming because that's what republicans do and so what you end up with is like every issue of importance ends up being tribalized now so you look at like covid19 you know people on the left think we should be socially distancing and shutting down the economy because it's that's what democrats are supposed to think you know and people on the conservative i'm I'm generalizing of course but people on the right are more likely to say well the economy is more important grandparents everywhere are welcome or or, you know to take one for the team you know which (laughs) picking this up right yeah said this you know uh i i think they should actually survey grandparents first before making that claim But the left does it too. So like you look at like gender issues. So the whole idea of like gender as a social construction is false. You know, our gender identity resides in the hypothalamus of our brain. So uh, people who are on the left tend to sort of ignore that science because it fits. That's what people on the left do. You know, that's what their tribe believes. So it's kind of like religion. You know, uh, people will ignore evidence that doesn't fit with their worldviews um, and do so in ways that sort of place them in these groups. And then they hate the other group of people that uh, have, you know, a, a different idea. So, you know, you're either like a literal like Nazi or a literal communist, depending, you know, if depending on who you disagree with. Um, and the problem over the last maybe like 10 to 15 years, well, there are some problems that have been built into the structure of, of U.S. politics, but also like social media has amplified this. Death. So. Two issues that kind of amplify these problems are, one, in the U.S., we have this primary system, um, which is terrible um, and has a lot of problems. And the unfortunate thing about the primary system is that it incentivizes the craziest people. Um, most of us have jobs and families and hobbies and things we need to do that make us reluctant to bother. To you know, It's not great, but it's are. So the average person doesn't tend to vote in primaries as often as crazy people. You know, and in the most general, you know, non, I'm not trying to offend anybody or that kind of stuff, but there's not in a mental health sense, but just in terms of people have very extreme views of how the world works. 
tend to be the ones who are motivated to vote in primaries. Um, those are exactly the people we don't want making decisions for the for the country, you know. And that's why you end up seeing candidates very often, you know, veering to the far left and the far right, you know, with these extreme viewpoints, you know, because they're appealing to the, you know, maddest people, if you will, to use the book's terms, uh, who are going to vote in primary elections. And you end up with the possibility that someone like, you know, Bernie Sanders, who I think was you know, a good faith individual, had a lot of good ideas, but was pretty extreme. You know, the, uh, my, my guess, if I was going to guess about the election in 2020, is that he had probably stood far less a chance of actually being elected than Joe Biden. But uh, because he was so far from most people in the, in the uh, you know, the, uh, the voting public. Um, but he was a serious candidate. In the, in the primary, people had to, you know, um, he, you know people were inclined to uh be sympathetic to his worldview because they also were more extreme voters in the in the primary now you know granted trump himself is of course very extreme in, in opposing ways so you end up with two extreme candidates who the hell knows what's going to happen there but um so the primary system is kind of a problem because you end up with this sense that the maddest people end up picking the two candidates that we get to vote between you know and then for those us. Maybe I maybe I should maybe I am mad. I don't know. But yeah, for those people, maybe I shouldn't include myself in there. But for the people in the middle, the people that are less mad, at the very least, they end up with two horrible candidates, right? Who they don't like, you know. And that's that's a kind of a problem for our voting system. Um, the other thing has been more more of a recent challenge over the last ten to fifteen years, of course, is social media. Where uh, social media is wonderful. It's got a lot of benefits to us. It's lovely. I use it, you know. So. But of course, it also amplifies, and, and probably Twitter is the worst of all of them. It sort of amplifies the most extreme viewpoints and further tribalizes people. So there's this addition. So if you ever like try to have a nuanced debate about like abortion, um, and you know, so that's actually an issue I don't really care that much about. Like I don't have a strong opinion, and so I have said sometimes like I can see both sides' arguments. And I see merit to both. And you end up being like a literal sexist, misogynist, woman hater, and baby killer at the same time. You know, yeah. you didn't endorse fully either side's extreme views of, of how the world should work. And so I think that you can get this weird, like, like quasi-censorship almost of moder- moderate or nuanced views that emerges through systems like that yeah so um like i said i'm on twitter i use it you know but i sometimes kid that like twitter is like this dark hole of like human you know social interaction and such because of its tendency uh to be incredibly unforgiving about stupid things i mean there are these toxic environments over like young adult novels or knitting apparently is something where like there's extreme you know uh narratives of knitting you know i mean come on yeah 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 (laughs) you know uh, how are you a fascist knitter? You know, I don't know, but <laughs> that's, that's what happens, you know. And so you end up with these structures that end up, you know, incentivizing the most extreme, angry, maddest voices, if you will. And because they're so extreme and angry and have this platform now, they can shout down and disincentivize most of us who don't want to be bothered. You know, we don't have the stomach to end up in that kind of mud fight with a bunch of mad people, you know, it's abusive. We don't feel that strongly about whatever the issue is. You know, we don't want to be called a fascist, communist, baby killer, I don't know, whatever the, the, the thing of the day, you know, may end up being. 
and and I think that ends up causing a problem for our discourse, if you will, and that it cuts down in our ability to compromise. It cuts down in our ability to see the viewpoints or respect the viewpoints of others who feel differently from us, even if we disagree with them. Um, and it ends up causing gridlock. You know, so we're unless you know unless one party ends up with a supermajority, we can't do anything. And our and granted, our government was kind of built that way on purpose to some extent. But you know, it, it becomes hard to like on global warming. You know, it's just you know. The more you say that the right are evil, fascist, oil-loving, world-killing monsters, the less they're going to want to work with you. Uh, you know, on and same thing. The more that you say that the left is this like conspiracy, evil, you know, fraud, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, they're not going to want to work with you. Nobody listens more because you call them an asshole, right? You know, that doesn't incentivize people to hear you. Uh, anymore but it's you know again emotionally it's tempting as yeah, yeah. we like to make ourselves look virtuous at the expense of other individuals you know uh and that signals to our group how we have adhered to the ideology or the identity of our group and in the moment it's very very satisfying uh, unfortunately it's in completely unpragmatic I and mean, completely unpractical and doesn't lead you know, to any kind of actual change or uh, positivity uh, in the world. You know, the most you can hope for is that your group assumes total control, in which, again, you have some sort of ideological authoritarian regime, um, which generally doesn't work either. You know, it ends up in disaster in most cases. So we want a plurality of views. We want compromise. We want people to work together. And unfortunately, the way things have kind of evolved, both politically and socially, you know, in part through social media, I don't want to blame everything on Twitter, um, has ended up causing this incentive structure where the loudest, maddest people have, out, at very least, outsized voices. And that makes it difficult for more modern voices uh, to, uh, you know, to, be, to be heard. And in my own field, academia is as bad as anybody, you know, to be honest. You know? um, and, uh, and that's something I think we need to really look at and change and maybe dial things back to the 70s or 80s. You know, I hate to be one of these people saying, my day was much better. But, um, you know, it, it definitely is something that kind of took off from the 90s and got worse in the, in the 21st century. So if we could kind of dial it back a little bit to, uh, you know, God forbid, the Reagan years. Um, and and so, yeah, at least they were able to compromise on some things and get some right. things done. Lost the ability, um, you know, to do that. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, no, I, I, t- I totally agree. Um, uh, well, anyway, uh, I think one really great way that people can do a better job of trying to hear out arguments and listen to people uh, is to read books. Um, uh, Chris, uh, I don't want to keep you too long. I guess we've been talking for probably maybe about an hour, a little uh, longer. Uh, I have really enjoyed speaking with you, uh, and I very much enjoyed the book. Once again, it is, uh, how madness shapes history. And the author is Dr. Chris Ferguson. Um, thanks very much for taking the time and for, uh, speaking to my audience. Uh, any other books or projects you want to talk about uh, before I let you go? 
Yeah, sure. So first off, it was awesome being on. I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time that uh, you took to talk with me today. Um, you know, as far as other books, I got two other ones that people might want to read. Uh, I hope they want to read. Um, so I have one other nonfiction book that's called um, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, uh, which is kind of just, again, what it says on the box. Uh, so it's actually about video game research. That's actually my primary area. It's actually doing research on video games. So it talks a little bit about that. But again, it's kind of fun. And, you know, I try to tell jokes in there as well. Uh, although we also talk about like mass shootings and all kinds of other salacious yeah. things. Um, so I don't make jokes about them, but you know the jokes and, and the horrible stories are separated from each other. Um, and then I also have a novel, <laughs> uh, which is a mystery novel with a female protagonist that's set in uh, 15th century Florence. Uh, so if you oh, want a little cool. bit of a from all the serious science and history stuff, uh, that's kind of a uh, interesting. I liked it, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> I would read it, uh, you know. So uh, yeah. So hopefully people will get interested in checking a couple of those out as well. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, once again, uh, thank you very much. And uh, uh, you have a great day. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Chris. Same here. Take care. Have a good day. Okay. I'm gonna... And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I'll take it over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip, 'cause it's a mutiny.